1: Welcome to American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're speaking about a topic that actually touches every one of us, either directly or indirectly. Although our focus will be on the workplace, we're speaking about the challenge that we have in the workplace, in communities, with different generations sometimes looking at things very differently. The question that we're asking today, are different generations doomed to clash in the workplace? To help us with the answer is Sue Hawks. Sue, it's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Sue, there are many folks, no doubt, listening to the show that know your name. You're a best-selling author. You're a keynote speaker. You're the author of a book called Chasing Perfection. And uh, I'll tell you, a lot of people say, wow, at least DeRose finally got Sue on the show. Other people are scratching their heads. (laughs) Sue Hawks, just who is this woman anyway? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: No, my background's varied. I've been a business coach and someone who works with entrepreneurs and their leadership teams for about the past 25 plus years.
3: Wow. And
2: my background has lent me to really study people and dynamics and what happens that gets in the way of us performing and enjoying what we do all day together.
1: Mm. This is such an important topic, and what's so exciting to me is a lot of times people who listen to our show, our show is themed for health, and so we're always talking about things that have different bearings on health, and I not infrequently will do things that deal with business health, and sometimes people might be tempted to ask, well, why are you talking about business health? Well, The reason is we spend a huge portion of our lives in the workplace and the workplace can either be something that energizes us or drains us. This is really a dynamic that you've spent a lot of your life looking at, isn't it? It is. Now, as we've got this very diverse workforce, not just in terms of people of different ethnicities from born in different parts of the world, people from different cultural backgrounds and my listeners in Indian country, They well know if they're running a large tribal enterprise, they have people from all kinds of backgrounds working. There's not enough tribal members to run that uh, particular business in many settings. They know what we're talking about, but another challenge that really seems to be in the news a lot is this whole aspect of different generations. Is there a different work ethic? Are there different ways to communicate? Tell us a little bit about this.
2: Well, you know, from my perspective, David, I'm not a generational expert. I'm fascinated with the research and the facts that come out and, you know, all the information. I just read a report today about Gen Z, which is the the youngest generation out in the workforce at this point. And I think oftentimes what I hear and the most common frustrations I've heard in the past several years are with millennials, and that's those young people who are in the 23-year-old to about 38- or 39-year-old category, you know, and there's a lot blamed on the generation, and that just doesn't make sense to me.
1: Hmm. So what I hear you saying, Sue, and what I would gather from your work, is that what you're saying is stop blaming dysfunctional communication in the workplace on age or gender, or ethnicity, there's some practical things that work for everyone. Am I reading too much into your response?
2: No, it was very well said. You know, I think the the basis of it is when we focus on differences of any kind, which our world seems to be rampant at right now, it creates real problems wherever we are, not just the workplace. Mm. So in fact, those differences between generations you know, they're worth noting and learning about, but that isn't why we're having communication problems.
1: So walk us into a corporation, a business, small business, whatever example you want to choose, that might have called on you to give some advice. And you've actually seen things turn around based on just helping people frame the issues differently and maybe just tightening up other uh, communication.
2: You know, it's. Uh, I'm glad you asked me about an example. I just had this happen yesterday. I was in Dallas with a company. And in fact, um, two of their team members were having some conflict. And one was in sales and one is more on the production end of their business. And it's, it's about a $30 million company. And these are two members of their leadership team. And in short, the person in sales prefaced almost everything that he said to the person in production with, I know you're really working hard, and I want to acknowledge that. And from his side of the world, he thought that was a huge affirmation. What he would follow it with was the, but here's what's not working between us. And no matter what it was, it felt like a backhanded compliment. Hmm. And to be able to talk with both of these people and to recognize that one person's strategy for what they thought was affirming and also addressing an issue and the other person's receptivity to that and the fact that she shut down ended up being an hour-long conversation because it had caused so much tension between seven members of the team.
1: Hmm. So how do you fix something like that if one person feels They're being put down, uh, they're not being affirmed, they don't appreciate where they're at. How do you undo that, or how do you start the whole process?
2: Well, I think we did start the process, which is acknowledging that there's a disruption and what its source is. Because, you know, with every conflict, what I find is one person's arguing that their intent was pure. You know, Mm. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, David, And the other person is arguing, well, my feelings are hurt, the impact. So you have intent versus impact, and you're never going to get anywhere. And so even being able to acknowledge it and talk about what was happening is the first step. Then where you end up evolving the conversation, because what most human beings want to do is then drag in a 100 examples of he said, she said, and here's where you failed, and this is why I have to do that, and it doesn't become productive. And especially in a group environment, what I started to say was, look, we know there's an issue. And your intent is pure, if that's the case, and really, truly, your intent is pure, you should still be very flexible in re delivering that message another way. So what's another way we can approach this. Mm -hmm. And I backed these two people up with a I, I don't know if you or your audience are familiar with NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is a whole incredible body of work on how your brain works and and has you be effective, but there's a presupposition for communication that I happen to appreciate more than anything, which is the meaning of your communication is the response that you get. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And if you let that sink in, which I do, and I frequently remind myself of this because I'm still practicing because I'm human. I look up and I say, if really my intent is pure and all I'm trying to do is get a message across to you and for you, David, you receive something I say poorly, you know, whether you're hurt or angry or anything less than understanding and happy with it,
3: Mm -hmm. I
2: should be very flexible and be able to say, oh, wait, that's not the impact I wanted to have. Let me try again in a different fashion. So that you can hear it the way I intend it. And I wouldn't be upset, angry, more dug in. I wouldn't come at it from a level of frustration expecting you to do anything different than what you did. I'd let that inform me on where I had to work harder as the speaker.
1: I mean, this is all very interesting. And probably like you, I try to give people credit for the best motives. But Mm -hmm. often it seems that people are maybe trying to push those buttons or trying to put someone in their place or, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, hurt them, even though they may not say they're trying to actually harm an individual. Is that not true?
2: Well, you know, I think I'd be lying if I said for some people that probably is true. I think if we can be better, whether it's a generational thing or anything else, at saying, I'm letting things fester best, things up so that mm. I would have some ill intent <laughs> mixed in there or some less than forwarding motives. Um, that's, I think, being honest. So that, that if you said, you know, Sue, you weren't completely honest about that. It, that, that really hurt the way you said that was sharp. I would, again, if I'm over here saying, look, I'm trying to build a bridge, not a wall, I would be able to slow myself down enough to say, thank you. Let me try
1: again. Well, let's come back then to some of the generational issues. I know we've already said they're overblown, but are there some things that are helpful to know, at least as far as someone who might be in a position of a tribal elder? Maybe they're also in a key role in a tribal industry. Maybe they run their own business, Uh, they may be Native, they may have employees who are not Native, and we're not asking you to to so much look at some of those uh, ethnic and racial differences, but more the age divide. Are there certain unique challenges for someone in management if they're working with someone who's from a different generation?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I can give you a perfect example of one of my employees who I work with, who is 24. I'm 53. And she needs praise. She needs connection. She needs a lot of interaction during the day. I'm fiercely independent. I'm not someone who likes to have a lot of hands-on management. And we had to stumble our way through working together because what we found was I had a level of frustration at one point because I felt like I wasn't communicating well, whether it was email, verbal, whatever. And it was really frequency. What she Mm -hmm. needed was a touch base in the morning, a touch base at the end of the day, and she could flow through her day with priorities very crystal clear. But we had a lot of interaction by email and whatnot that I felt like we were over communicating, and I advocate that, when in fact she was saying, no, it's the face-to-face. I need a relationship with you, and if we can just have a little huddle, that changed the game for us. Um, A secondary thing was my framework, the way I experienced the world and the way I grew up was, you know, if you do something exceptional, we'll let you know from my parents and other people in the world. Otherwise, we just expect you to do good work and you're not going to hear about it (laughs) much otherwise. So assume nothing's wrong. For her, if she wasn't hearing consistent, continual praise on you're doing a great job, I Mm. like what you're doing, that really worked well what she assumed was it was bad. And Hmm. that was a complete 180 degree thing. So I'm assuming great things. I'm telling her if it's exceptional. And she's saying, I must be doing everything wrong and going home defeated every day because she's not hearing enough praise from me.
1: Now, do you think from your research, and I know, again, you've prefaced your remarks that you're not an expert on generational conflict and things, but Is this something that does seem to be more common in younger workers, that they are needing more affirmation maybe than someone who grew up in a different era?
2: I do believe that's true. Yes, absolutely.
1: And do you think it is also this face-to-face that's important? I mean, a lot of people say, wow, if you look at younger workers today, it seems that they are so media-driven that even when they're at a restaurant together, it seems that they're all on their devices and not talking together all that much.
2: I think there's a faction of truth to that, because if you think about the millennials, they grew up and technology intervened. Gen Z, the new generation, has never known a world without technology. My generation, it was a new tool to use. So we have different orientations to Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But I think for the millennials, the ones right in the middle, um, what... Prevalent for them is they've never done anything or very little independently. They've always been on teams and collaborating because much of their upbringing was already scheduled. They do things in teams and they actually like that collaborative environment even Mm -hmm. though they utilize technology.
1: Okay, so basically, it sounds like one of the jobs of people in leadership, whether they're a supervisor, business owner, team leader, is to really understand from your employees what makes them click.
2: Absolutely.
1: Sue, we've got a lot more to talk about. Our time for this segment is slipping away very quickly. But if someone's not able to stay with us for our whole dialogue, you've got some great resources. Where's the single best place to point people?
2: You know, I think it would be the book, Chasing Perfection, Shatter the Illusion, and you can get it on Amazon.com.
1: Great. That is Sue Hawks. She'll be back with us for more on today's edition of American Indian Living. Again, her book, Chasing Perfection, Shatter the Illusion. We've got more to come, things that will help you make a difference in your workplace environment, in your home, in your life. I'm Dr. DeRose. A lot more coming up on today's edition of American Indian Living. Don't go away.
0: Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE.
1: 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking today about business health, organizational health, especially some of those conflicts that come up in the way of communication, especially intergenerational communications. My guest is Sue Hawks. Sue is a well-known keynote speaker. She's a best-selling author. She is indeed the author of a book called Chasing Perfection, Shatter the Illusion. And Sue, I love this subtitle because it really brings us back to what we've already been talking about. The subtitle is Minimize Self-Doubt and maximize success. We've been talking about this self-doubt uh, that may plague people at any age, but it seems perhaps to characterize millennials perhaps a little bit more frequently than others. They want more affirmation. Why did you write such a book? I mean, what inspired you to write a book that really seems to be uh, meeting a need?
2: Well, you know, I think for me, I am an entrepreneur. And as I told you, I work with entrepreneurial leadership teams and business owners and leaders primarily. That's where I've spent my time. And a frightening statistic is that 80% of all successful people feel like a fraud, and I'm one of them. And as I sat in these rooms where I've facilitated peer learning or working with leadership teams or a number of other things. What became very apparent to me was I was not alone. And the only way I figured that out was by observation and really helping others work through it. I also had to work through a number of things. So that's really the basis of the book was looking at my own foibles and misdoings and things that didn't work. And it led me to 10 chapters of, you know, self-learning consciousness work, really doing some hard things, and the practices that I had to give myself and others in the coaching world as I worked with them, you know, to start to practice different things to become less doubtful and obviously more successful.
1: Well, you really got me scratching my head. 80% of successful people feel like a fraud?
2: Yeah, it comes and goes.
1: So let me break this down because when I hear the word fraud, I'm thinking the person feels like they're cheating other people. They're, they really don't have anything to offer. They're selling goods that really don't, well, don't really amount to anything. Are these the kind of things you're talking about or is it something bigger?
2: Um, it's in that category, but not quite as literal. So it's called imposter syndrome, which I'm betting you know something about, um, from a clinical place perhaps. But, you know, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability and it's all wrapped in, you know, imposter syndrome is this very legitimate experience that successful people have where as you attain success, what starts to happen is you set the bar higher. And then as you set the bar higher, what additionally happens is you start saying, am I going to make that? And as you keep ascending and accomplishing more, at some point you start to say, I don't know if I'm going to hit that bar at some point. And you hope that the external world believes all of this stuff because equal to your success is a level at which you say, can I pull it off again? Can I really reach something? Because we're pushing ourselves to be better and do more. And so those, those kind of questioning voices become more persistent and louder. And there were a couple of female doctors back in the late 70s that did some studies around imposter syndrome. And they actually, these psychologists thought it was specifically about high achieving females. Later they came back 20 years and found out that men went through the very same thing. And again, the research shows 70 to 80% of leaders experience this imposter syndrome you know where you where you feel this these waves of self-doubt. and what they said was the other twenty percent, if you don't feel that ever, you're probably you really are an imposter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So this is very interesting stuff. Let's uh, make it practical. Tell us some stories where you saw some of these concepts play out.
2: Oh my. Um, I can go down a rabbit hole on this, and I, I illuminate a lot of it in the book because I use myself as a subject because many of my clients I can't talk about I'm of under a confidential oath, of course. So, you know, in my own life, what I would tell you is I thought I was reasonably successful in my 30s. I had a couple of businesses. I had a nice family. I had the house in the suburbs with my, you know, picket fence and all the right things externally. And by the time I was 39, everything changed. My world fell apart. Hmm. And I coach people on how to be successful and what their practices can be in all of this. So I have this duality going on because number one, I was going through a divorce. Number two, my businesses were failing. Number three, my mom, my dad, and my brother all passed away in a relatively short period of time, and my world began to crumble. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: so my own self-image was completely in question, because what I did for a living was in stark contrast to the reality that was occurring, Mm -hmm. and I felt a really, really, really strong need to appear strong and confident and together amidst all these things going on to the external world, despite the fact that I was hanging on by my fingernails all over the place.
1: Wow, that is uh, that is an amazing juncture in life. And I know many people, when they go through such challenges, they fall back on on spiritual values, whether we're talking about folks in Indian country who embrace things that their elders have embraced for generations, whether it's, a religious practice that they may embrace, that they were disconnected from. But what you're saying, I think, is that although there may be that spiritual dimension, there are also some real things that are happening on the level of the mind, whether or not someone negotiates some of those challenges, utilizing spiritual resources in their community or in their background or not.
2: Absolutely. And faith played a huge part in that for me. But that was really, truly, I I would tell you up until that point in my life, I had had, and I'm putting, if you could see me, my fingers up in quotations right now, you know, a a semi-perfect life from the outside looking in. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it wasn't perfect in all ways, but my perfect life at that point was a lie. In order to really be authentic, I had to shatter a lot of illusions about what that meant. And really, truly, I look back at the gift that unbelievably challenging time was in my life Mm. because the humility it allowed me and the opportunity to really truly look up and say what matters what really is limiting me what am I making up and what kind of image am I trying to preserve and why you know led me to a much more unwavering unshakable sense of myself and far more confidence and peace over time and that's really the fodder in the book, because I think all of us have had our own challenges in greater and lesser degree, but they, relative to your own experience, they're real and they're significant. Mm -hmm. Um, So how how do you create that for yourself? And so I started to note the practices I had, and many of them fell in the spiritual realm, meditation, journaling, certainly practicing my own faith, all of those things helped but it wasn't any one thing. It was a combination of a lot of things.
1: So you're talking now like a preventive medicine doctor. When we talk with people, we say, <laughs> no, we say it's a, whole, it's a whole lifestyle. I mean, someone wants to prevent heart disease. It's not just avoiding the, you know, addictive commercial tobacco. It's not just changing the, the diet. I mean, it, it really is a whole lifestyle. And you're basically saying, Sue, at least what I hear you making a point for is you have to look at the whole picture of your mental lifestyle, the things that you dwell on, the things that are part of you, and you're actually trying to help people walk through that as they read Chasing Perfection, Shatter the Illusion. Is that a fair synopsis?
2: Absolutely. Well said. And there are practices, actionable practices throughout the book on the things I did And what other people, I have 18 leaders featured in the book as well, talking about what they've done. And we have on our website a number of resources because I don't have all those answers. And we all have to develop, again, practices to continue to try and combat that mental game that we play with ourselves.
1: What I find so fascinating about the dialogue, Sue, is we started by talking about employees who seem to be very needy. They seem to need reaffirmation because they tend to have this self-doubt. And you've really flipped the whole discussion on its head because you're saying, well, often the people that we're looking to to give us affirmation are struggling themselves for affirmation. And they're on this journey as well. Is it safe to assume that your book Chasing Perfection is for everyone even though you're especially highlighting people who most people would look at and say they're very successful?
2: Um, Yeah I think that's safe I would tell you I really aimed it at those leaders owners and entrepreneurs primarily because I do think as you said it so well you know they're looked at as successful people and it's It's a wonderful avenue for them to say, yeah, the world's in on the game. (laughs)
3: Mm.
1: Well, I'm finding uh, our dialogue fascinating. You've got a lot of practical, real-life examples. We're going to talk more with Sue Hawks. She is the author of a book that we've been referring to, Chasing Perfection, Shatter the Illusion, the subtitle Minimize Self-Doubt and Maximize Success. Before we step away from the mics for just a couple of minutes, Sue, one more time, if someone is interested in the book or other resources, where do they go?
2: Either Amazon.com or ChasingPerfection.net.
1: Okay, ChasingPerfection.net. If you can't remember it, head to Amazon and look up Sue Hawks. We'll be back with a lot more from Sue Hawks. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Second half of the show coming up right after this.
0: American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre recorded broadcast, please call 1 800 775 HOPE. That's 1 800 775 4673.
4: So, you want to be a hero? Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders
5: and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So, whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936.
1: Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking with Sue Hawks. If you've been wondering how to spell Hawks, it's not the way you think. It's H-A-W-K-E-S. Well, if you thought that, I guess you were right to begin with. H-A-W-K-E-S, Sue Hawks. And Sue, that's actually one of your websites as well. It's just your name, right?
2: It is, with a dot com.
1: Okay, so suehawks.com, that's a way to tap into Sue's wisdom. Or if you prefer, chasingperfection.net, any of them will bring you to Sue's resources. And Sue, is it safe to say that in addition to buying the book there, there's some other pearls of wisdom that we can uh, gather, even if we're not willing to uh, shell out a lot of money to begin with?
2: Absolutely. Tons of free resources. Please use them.
1: Great. So I've got that down. SueHawks.com, ChasingPerfection.net. And do they both point in the very same place on the Internet? Indeed. Okay. You made it easy for us. Well, we've been talking, we began at least, by talking about some of these generational differences, and we've been moving more to talk about something that affects people across generations, especially if they're in a leadership capacity. We want to kind of bring it back down to the realm of every single one of us. And I want to talk with you, Sue, about something that we're hearing a lot about, whether it's in medical circles, whether it's in any business. You hear this concept of work-life balance. Tell us about that whole concept, at least from your vantage point, as you're working with large businesses and small.
2: You know, I think balance is a really misunderstood word. I don't know why it was so hard to come up with misunderstood, but it was right there. I think there's an internal component that what people are describing or what gets evoked when you hear the word balance is more about peace and being Mm. centered and grounded and aligned with your values and what matters most to you. And I think there's an external time management piece, which I think most often... In the articles in all the self-help magazines and on television and radio and whatnot is more what people focus on is the time management piece. But we don't address how those two things coordinate. So I think we have to get the two to coincide to really truly promote what I think people are more trying to get at that we don't have enough of these days, which I would describe as peace or alignment with what matters.
1: Okay, so basically, if I'm reading between the lines correctly, I hear you taking some exception to the idea that if I just schedule X amount of time at the gym or Y amount of time with my family or Z amount of time to uh, spend in the kitchen preparing meals, I've somehow achieved balance by following a certain equation. Is that kind of what you're speaking against?
2: Exactly. Because I think there's some kind of a presupposition by all of us. If we aren't feeling that, something must be wrong. And then also, I'm pretty sure if I looked at your calendar and you looked at mine, neither one of us would say that's my idea of what balance looks like. Hmm. And I think that's universally true. For me, because I'm an entrepreneur, I'm somebody who tends to put 10 pounds of flour in a five-pound bag. Most people would not want what keeps me vibrant and energized (laughs) and excited about life. And yes, I'm guilty of at times going way past that limit. And then there are times when I actually catch it. And I say, this is exactly it. And then it flips away almost as fast as I recognize this is it. This is that secret mix.
1: So help us, at least on your own journey, when it comes to peace. The reason I say your own journey, I know many of my listeners, they might share something from traditional Native American perspective, maybe unique to their tribe, how people in their culture, in their tribal venue have found peace, how they connect with the creator, how they connect with nature and the environment. Others who are listening today may want to answer that from a Christian perspective. It may have to do with prayer, meditation, Bible study, whatever things are important for them as far as feeling like they're connected with their creator. They might use that very same term. But there are many people who listen to the show, who may not have those deep tribal roots. They may be Native, but they were raised in an urban area. They don't really relate to going out uh, on some mesa and watching the sunrise or something that might be very powerful for one of my Native listeners, whereas uh, others, they uh, say, look, I want none of this formal religious stuff. What I hear you talking to, Sue is that there are certain general principles of finding peace with yourself that may transcend those things. We're not, we're not saying those other things aren't important, or maybe they aren't the most important in some situations, or maybe in all. I don't want to get into that dialogue, but for someone who right now, their world is falling apart, you're just trying to help them find some sense of normalcy. What do you communicate to them?
2: Well, if things are falling apart, that I would direct more toward. I have two particular chapters around put on your oxygen mask first is one chapter. And okay, I think when it's starting to fall apart, at least in my experience, it was about self-care at that point and uh. really about what were the practices I needed to change my thinking and to overcome the habit of putting myself last. Because I was so busy trying to address all the different external factors that seemed to be falling apart at that point. And at some point, I had to learn to stop and really take care of myself in order to be able to take care of everything else. And I think that really is counterintuitive and it feels selfish and it's so hard to do. The the second thing I would tell you is I had to learn to lower the bar as someone Mm. who raises the bar quite often and enjoys that. At that time in life, it wasn't about, wow, the experts say, work out three times a week, or it's the beginning of a new year and you've done your resolutions. It was, you know what, if I get out to work out or do something beneficial for my own health and well-being, whether that's spiritual, whether that's journaling, whether that's exercise, whether that's out with a friend, whether that's a walk in nature, whether that's taking my child and my dog to the park, it didn't really matter. I'm going to do something intentional that feeds me every single week. And it was a once a week thing. So I had to learn to lower the bar and start to say, I have to establish a pattern of winning again before I can add anything in. I
1: really like this and I appreciate you using that term self-care I may have shared this story on air before, of course, it's probably not something that you've heard, Sue, but was it wasn't a normal situation where you'd expect to have this dialogue. It was a patient who had a significant experience, uh, an elder, many years behind them. They were not a native person. And they were in my office for a repeat visit, and they said, Dr. DeRose you changed my life. That last visit I had with you several months ago, person had lost weight. I said, well, what did I say? What, what happened? She said, you told me about self-care. Mm-hmm. And I just stopped kind of amazed. Like, here's someone with lots of experience. This was a new concept to, you know to care for yourself. But it was almost as if she was saying, all she thought you did when you went to the doctor is the doctor takes care of your health. And you're basically saying that I have something to do in the process. As elementary as that seems, somewhere along the way, it doesn't matter who we are, what our age is, whether we're a millennial, a Gen Xer, whether we're a Generation Z or a baby boomer, anywhere in that whole continuum, it seems like we can forget the importance of self-care. Why is that so easy to forget, Sue?
2: I think in my own experience, and that's all I can base it on. I don't have research on this, but for me, I'm a really good adder. I'm someone who is curious and I love new things. And even my business is called Yes, which doesn't lend itself to putting limits on. (laughs) And, And for me, I did not have a practice until my life really got into more of a crisis mode of, Stopping and evaluating all I had added and saying, is this working? What's going? And I think where I made up time and where I see a lot of busy, successful people take from is the feeding of their own well-being, because that's easy time to justify, you know, oh, I don't have time on the treadmill, but I do have time to work an extra hour. I don't have time to make dinner and eat it with my family. We'll just pick up something at a restaurant and we'll eat standing up because I've got to get back on the computer. And so I found that as I added more dimensions, whether it was the next house or having a child or the bigger job or any of the multiple things that are normal progressions in life as I went along, I didn't stop and say, now, how does this change all of the things that are going on and what really feeds me and keeps me well? Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're asking really important questions. And I love that title of the chapter, Put On Your Own Oxygen First. Did I catch that right?
2: Put On Your Oxygen Mask First, yeah.
1: Okay. So let's come back to this issue of generations and how that relates to balance. I know again this is not your area of expertise but have you noticed that there's some different ways that different generations in the workplace are processing this question of balance?
2: You know I can speak to the millennial part because again I work with a few of those and one in particular Ally Alexandra who wrote the book In chapter 10 with me you know what I would tell you is she probably has more grounded and centeredness around what a traditional sense of quote-unquote balance would be meaning she wants to go to work for a fixed period of time and then she wants to be free to be at home read a book hang out at a coffee shop those would be her self-care practices I think she and the group she runs with are far more inclined to do yoga than do some hardcore strength training kind of thing, although they do the hyped up musical version that I think is more hardcore than Zen. Um, But that being said, I think they have better boundaries of what it should and I'm doing the quotes again look like to have work and then home and some separation
3: Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm.
2: although I think all our electronics makes this very difficult Mm. because I often call my phone and all the other devices electronic leashes that unless you develop good habits put them away really they can pull you back in in a second And so I have taken to not carrying mine at times or turning it off or putting it somewhere distant. Otherwise, I am one to pick it right back up and just handle one thing.
1: Hmm. We have got to talk a little bit more about these electronic leashes. And there may be some other things on your mind that you'd love to ask Sue. Well, of course, it's not an interactive show, but... The good news is we're not done talking. Sue's going to stick by. We encourage you to do the same. And if you're wanting to get more information and you missed that website earlier, it's simply chasingperfection.net. A wealth of resources there from Sue Hawks. She's a best selling author, a keynote speaker, and she's someone who's not going away. We'll be right back with more from Sue Hawks on this edition of American Indian Living
0: Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: You're back for the final segment of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Sue Hawks is my guest. She's been with me from the top of the hour. Sue is a best-selling author and keynote speaker. We've been speaking about one of her books called Chasing Perfection, how that relates to intergenerational differences, how it relates to finding balance in life. And, Sue, one of the things that I was thinking about before we had to slip away for the break is something that I think erodes at least peace, perhaps more than anything else, and that is guilt. Now, there's all kinds of spiritual answers to guilt, and uh, many of my listeners would be happy, I'm sure, to, to chime in here. But if we're trying to speak to a broad audience, maybe from different spiritual perspectives, Are there certain practices that we can engage in that can actually decrease the likelihood of having guilty feelings?
2: You know, the single best thing that's helped me is learning to say yes and no authentically Hmm. and that I don't have to justify my no's and really learning that no or no thank you is a, a complete sentence. We aren't bargaining. We don't have to apologize. Sometimes things just don't fit. What I find for me, again, and what I learned as I really explored this, because learning to say no was very difficult. I highlighted my business name already, and someone pointed that out to me, and as funny as it was, it was kind of like a slap in the face, wake up, Mm. like even my business is yes. And I have it in the book, uh, a practice of how do I learn to even build a pause? So I can stop myself because my automatic answer to so many things is yes, because I Mm -hmm. truly want to be involved Mm -hmm. in different things or have different experiences. And I don't stop or slow down enough to consider what gets what comes along with that. For instance, many yeses include a lot of yeses with them. If you say you're going to host a holiday, for example, in your home and have your family over and friends. There's a host of yeses in that one yes, but in my mind and in my calendar, it shows up as an event, a one-time thing. It doesn't include all those other yeses, Uh so something's going to go.
1: So basically what I hear you saying is a lot of times when we have feelings of guilt, it's because we've overcommitted ourselves and then can't follow through on things we've promised to do, or at least not do them as well as we think we should do them.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I've bought into, as many people have, this, you can have it all theory in life. And I believe it's true. I do believe that there's a facet of that is true. It's just the second half of that sentence is not all at the same time.
1: So it seems like part of what we're really talking about is getting away from this idea that in order to have self-worth, we have to accomplish so much. We have to keep setting new goals. If people ask us to do things in the workplace or in our social sphere or on a tribal level, we want to give back. We appreciate our roots. Someone who's an elder maybe asks us to take on something that we don't feel we can handle. Maybe there is an appropriate place to say no, but maybe it's not culturally appropriate or, well, even in the workplace sometimes? Could that get you into trouble saying no?
2: You know, I think it can. I think it's how you do it. I think if you do it well, for me, what was at stake often was risking someone being slightly hurt in that moment and maybe losing some approval or some points or some opportunities versus them being angry or upset. If I fail at what I was doing, Mm. or don't show up, or even worse, really give them a false yes. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's trading the experience of dreading that experience, having all that guilt weighing on you, because you really don't want to, can't, aren't able to perform the way you'd like to, because you didn't in the front end say, how can I explore you getting your needs met or help with that without committing myself as the person to do it?
1: We've been talking about a lot of things that relate to generational challenges, things that affect our productivity, things that affect our sense of balance, our sense of peace, if you will. Sue, you deal with so many companies. You've dealt with so many over the years. There are some things that we haven't talked about that I know you cover in your book. Uh, It's an extensive uh, work. We're not uh, attempting to uh, summarize the whole book on today's show. But if someone were to say, You know, I've listened to the dialogue today, but chasing perfection really isn't for me. I've, you know, worked through these issues with the imposter syndrome and I understand all this stuff. I feel like I've got balance in my life. Are there some other things in your book that you find that people read and they say, you know, I never thought about that. I'm glad you mentioned it.
2: I think some of it is around the unique challenges women face as leaders. There are a couple of chapters that way. Um, I've gotten great comments on the entrepreneurial spin for people who have an interest in starting or running a business that way. And probably one of my favorite chapters to write came out of my son's experience. He has a number of learning disabilities. So that challenged me to learn how to learn. And the chapter is called Unlearning to Learn, which I Mm. think for anyone Let's you really look at how you best learn and approach things to be successful, because I do believe you can learn anything if you can do it in the way that you best approach things. But we don't stop and figure that out.
1: Well, you know, this is one of the big criticisms in education, that many times educational interventions are designed maybe with a different target audience in mind. And I hear this a lot in Indian country, that... Native people tend to be more hands-on, and of course you can't generalize for you know any culture, but they want more of that interactive experience, and so much today is very rote, very theoretical. Mm-hmm. What does that person do who says, okay, this is not the way I learn best, this particular training event at work or this school that I'm going to? What can that person do when it doesn't seem that they're in a position of power?
2: You know, the shorthand I would tell you is to look at some of the information that's within there. There are Howard Gardner's work, which you may be familiar with, is the Seven Kinds of Smart. And there are multiple intelligences. So there's no one way to do anything. Mm -hmm. And in the example you gave, you might need to be, you know, doing something active. It would be like learning math with an abacus versus a pencil and paper,
3: Hmm.
2: there's a tactile part to it. You're doing the same thing or calculating, you know, who's the MVP in the football game because you're more sports minded, but you don't recognize you're doing math. You're, you're watching sports.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: so getting at it is getting you engaged to being in a curious state. So there's infinite ways to do that. And I touch on a little bit of that, but I've got a number of assessments in there to help people.
1: And that's all right in the book?
2: Either in the book or on the website. We've got a combination.
1: Wow, that is great. few comments about women as leaders. We've got a lot of women who listen to the show. Many of them have significant responsibilities all over the place, from tribal council leaders to people that are leading tribal health boards to folks running their own businesses, professionals. People who are leading homes as perhaps a single parent or a mother in a home with a father, but she's the consistent one there in that home. Are there principles there for women as leaders that might be things that uh, slip off most radar screens?
2: You know, yes. And what I would say is, I think one of the big presuppositions I introduce is the fact that women do have to go the extra mile and we do have to do more. And that's a fact. Hmm. And rather than being angry or offended by it, to recognize that as table state and then to align ourselves with, you know, the men and women who are on our side, rather than trying to change the fact that, yes, indeed, we're still working on this in our world right now.
1: So, Sue, you are someone who's basically, you've experienced a lot in the business world, We've been talking about business health and how it impacts our own health. As we're winding up the show, some folks have heard us speak about self-care, and I want to give you an opportunity to kind of turn the tables on me. I'm often giving people prescriptions. If you were to give a prescription to our listeners in general, what all would it include for better health as it relates to relationships, especially in the workplace?
2: Oh, my goodness. That's a big question. I would say, number one, assume positive intent. Number two, um, in Covey's words, seek first to understand. And number three, if you can acknowledge what's not working in a neutral way and focus on what you want and get about that, it expedites a whole lot of conflict. But often we don't articulate what we want clearly enough. So somebody can't partner with us mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. so
2: just being able to say here's what the issue is in one sentence or so here's what i want Can we get about figuring that out together
1: Great, right, great. Right. you know in fact i thought i was setting you up so you could say well if you want to just have one key it would simply get the book chasing perfection <laughs> shatter the illusion Minimize self doubt and maximize success. But you took the high road, Sue. I so appreciate it. We do have to run. Sue Hawks is the author of that book, Chasing Perfection. If you didn't learn as much as you wanted from her, well, just go to her website, chasingperfection.net. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully, today's show has helped you better achieve the very best of health.